Welcome to Still Growing in Grace, a program dedicated to inspiring joy, giving hope, and delighting in grace. I'm Mike Zenker, and I'll be sharing with you a message of hope that will expand your understanding of God's love and amazing grace. God already deeply loves you, totally accepts you, and really, really likes you. Growing in Grace Ministries Canada and Hope Fellowship, your community church, invite you to enjoy today's program as we dig deeper into what it means to be still growing in grace. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to have you with us on Still Growing in Grace. After all, none of us have arrived. We're all still growing in grace. And I'm excited about today's program. Um, This is going to be our last conversation or discussion on the topic of what is hell. Uh, It's turned into a six-part series. But today we're going to focus on the, the concept of what is the lake of fire. Um, there's been a lot of healthy discussions, uh, in this series, but also outside of the series, uh, between individuals, posts, comments, questions, and, uh, it's been enjoyable. Um, (laughs) something I learned from a, a friend of mine who tends to disagree on a lot of stuff that we, we talk about, (laughs) we haven't, uh, and we're friends, which is kind of cool. You know, we're, uh, in fact, he told me the other day, well, yeah, but we're still good buds. I went, yeah, of course we are. We don't have to agree on everything. Um, but the, the point that I learned, uh, re- I was reminded of, um, when you come across as uh, uh, I'm right and my answer is the only answer, then you have just shut the door in meaningful conversation and then you've just pushed yourself away from a ton of people who would love to have a conversation. So be careful with your tone. I'm still learning that. Uh, Be careful with your absoluteness, your dogma. Um, uh, Many people uh, that are on the journey of unlearning and deconstruction uh, tend to have a uh, anger in their tone or a bit of a bite in their in their conversations harshness uh, usually anger towards the religion and stuff like that but it ain't who you are Uh, you don't have to have a chip on your shoulder for every conversation you can actually gravitate towards who you already are uh, being the loving person that you are Um, and that's why this hell topic came up because this seems to be one of the most underlying themes in believers' lives that they don't either think about or really have an understanding on. They just say, well, it's, it's got to be real. It's got to be this and it's got to be that. When maybe it isn't. Um, I, uh, uh, yeah, I'm going to come back at the end. Um, uh, this is the interview we did last week. So I'm here watching with you live, hearing it again. I love doing this. Um, but uh, at the very end, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to refer to an article that Richard Murray wrote um, that was really, really good uh, on what the early church saw and believed on this topic of eternal torment, uh, concept of hell. Um, and it just, uh, it's, it, uh, most did not, um, which is kind of cool. You'll, you'll see that in the article when you, when you read it. But let's get into today's con- final conversation. Uh, I think you'll love it. Uh, it's uh, Bill Thrasher, Richard Murray, and myself discussing what is hell. Um, take a look in the comments below. You're going to see um, links to articles from Richard Murray on judgment, on what hell is, all, all kinds of related topics. I think, I think there's 17 of them. I'm not sure. But uh, please enjoy. Let's dig right in because this one is good. Here we go. 
All right, here we are. This is our final conversation on what is hell. Not does it exist or anything like that, uh, but rather what is it? Uh, if we're reading English translations that uh, use the word hell, um, what is the original language? We've talked about this in the last several uh, conversations. So today we want to have a conversation with Bill Thrasher and Richard Murray. Uh, thank you for joining today again. I love it. These are really fun conversations. Um, but today we kind of want to talk about this theme of the lake of fire because it keeps coming up as a, as a uh, go-to question. People are asking, well, wait a minute. What about this? What about that? So how do we want to begin this? Because this is a really, really big one. Well, um, I, I think it is important. And I think that um, people always go to Revelation, <laughs> you know, um, and to, when they're trying to maybe discuss wrath or maybe feel compelled to feel wrathful. Well, Revelation backs us up, you know, you know, and there's all sorts of uh, figurative language in Revelation. You know, the, somebody today was saying that they actually posted this on a Facebook thing about the passage that says we shall dine and we shall eat the flesh of kings, you know, and saying, and they, they, they were just talking about how wrathful and cruel. And they're and, excited about that. Yeah. Yeah. They were excited about it. Don't forget that passage. <laughs> and uh, I, it just makes you want to just, just have this little sign that beeps up over the head. Allegory, bigger speech, <laughs> <laughs> chill. <laughs> Do you know what you know, it, tells, I, it tells you something about those who want it to be true. It yeah. tells you something of their, the, the background they're coming with and they're, they're all bought in hook, line and sinker. Right. So, well, you know, I, I realized I posted this a few weeks back, but I said, you know, our, our major problem is that we literalize the weapons of scripture. Um, and then we, I mean, uh, and then we, we allegorize that the, the peaceful passages of scripture. So, you know, we, 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 you know, we should be allegorizing the weapons of Scripture, saying that's not talking, you know, when we talk about the, uh, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit and the breastplate of righteousness, these aren't weapons to kill flesh and blood. How many times do we need to see that Jesus never harmed flesh and blood? And then the New Testament, and, and, you know, there were so many in the early church that refused military service, and I'm not judging anybody about any of that. you got to hear it yourself. But you have to admit that the Christian, the early groundswell of Christianity was that we were nonviolent. We're not going to harm another human being made in the image of God, kind of like the New Testament repeatedly says. You know, it says, I think we said this the other day, but it, it doesn't say that you're not even supposed to harm somebody made in the image of God. You're not supposed to talk about it. Wait a minute. That's everybody. Everyone's made in the image of God. Shoot, we're screwed. Yes, 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 yes. yes. So, I mean... The whole thing, uh, I mean, I posted this just a few minutes ago, but uh, from Ephesians, it talked about be kind and tenderhearted toward one another, forgiving one another as Christ forgave you. And I was thinking about, boy, if I had to say two qualities that I always feel when I'm sensing Jesus, you know, when I'm sensing an organic interaction with Jesus, it would be kindness and it would be tenderness. And, you know, I've never and I have never felt the wrath of God the way that it's preached. I've ne if I were to be honest with you, I would never say I've never felt that hatred, that disgust. I hate the word disgust. <laughs> I hate it because it's so it's like anti-love. You know, disgust is anti-love. Love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Disgust doesn't do those things. It just despises all things, you know, looks down at all things, dismisses all things. And uh, so anyhow, all that by way of saying 
that uh, if, if, if disgust is in your heart, then you're going to read Revelation one way. But if kindness and tenderness is in your heart, you're going to read it another way. I saw, I saw a meme that said, I've, I've never heard anyone complain that Christians act too much like Jesus. Even the hardest, <laughs> even the hardest angriest, most anti-God atheist will complain that the problem with Christians is that we don't act enough like Jesus. Wow. Wow. Carl Vater wow. said that. Wow. Well, that's I, awesome. I would agree on just, you know, encapsulating the book of Revelation as a whole. I kind of, um, I've said this before and, and I've thought about this quite a bit. Uh, it's my opinion. So take, take this uh, with a grain of salt that, you know, I always do. <laughs> this, <laughs> the canon of scripture is a wonderful thing. I really do. I, I, I actually highly value the canon of scripture. I think it's a treasure trove of insight to, to so many different things, prof, prophetic and, and legal things that are pointing us to the person of Jesus, uh, keys to our humanity and to the cycles of humanity, uh, tendencies inside of our, our religiousness and our, our, our political things. It's just packed with wisdom and insight and, again, allegory and mystery. And it gives us the person of Jesus and gives us a really a, a snapshot into his personality. And then you have Revelation. And when you look at like the the history of the assembly of the Bible, right? It's kind of like you have, you know, the Old Testament, and even that's got the, the you know, the Pentateuch. It's got the, the 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 books here, the historical books. It's got the books of poetry, and they kind of stack them and pack them in a certain way. It's then it's got the prophets, and then it's got you know the New Testament. We got the four Gospels, and we got the epistles of, P, of Paul and. Then some other kind of guys said some things. And then we got Revelation and we're like, what the heck do we do with it? Just stick it at the end. Right. And granted, I, I probably believe is one of the last books probably scribed. It's probably fairly accurate, but I'm not sure it's the last book of scripture. In fact, if I, if I had to put it in my opinion, where it should go in the order, if I had to re you know, convert the order, I'd probably put it right after, um, or maybe even the first book of the New Testament. Wow. Because it's you, a summary of the entire book. If you started with Revelation and then you went into the Gospels after the fact, I think it would read a, a totally different way. But because we put them at the end, we've kind of futurized the entire narrative. We haven't personalized it and we haven't historic made it historical either. Either both of those are very, I think, very uh, important for understanding that book. And if we put it before, because it says in the very first chapter, this is the revelation, that's where you, the apocalypse, right? The unveiling, the enlightening, whatever you want to call it, of Christ Jesus. That's the minute. whole point of the you, book. Do, do you mean it's not the, the scare <laughs> that crap out of your book? Yeah, it's the whole point of the book is it's about the story of Jesus. It's not about the future of Jesus. It's about the story of Jesus, the same story that's about to be told in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which is probably the most important one to parallel those things. And so I think because of where it's placed, it garners a lot of confusion and it's been manipulated to create a lot of fear mm. and, and angst into people. That's really, 
uh, out of place when we understand the book from a better level. And I know this, this isn't about Revelation specifically, maybe that's a different series for a different time. But I think once we start to look at Revelation through the lens of the crucified Christ as the exact representation of God, which is exactly what Revelation tells us to do, it says, I heard the lamb, or I heard the lamb, uh, the, excuse me, the lion, I heard the lion of Judah announced, and I looked, and I saw the slain lamb. And Robert, uh, uh, Richard, you've said this, um, it's a giant oxymoron. And that moment, we're basically told right at the beginning of the story that everything's upside down, everything that's big is small, everything that's small is big. It is a huge upside down allegory that we're gonna go from this point forward. We're gonna look to see a lion and what we need to be, our spirit needs to hear or see the lamb. Amen. Amen, and you know, it says in there that Jesus is the only one that's worthy to open the seals, to unseal revelation. Right. And we need to take that hermeneutically. We need to take our hermeneutical cue from that as well. That all, Jesus is the only one that can really explain this to us. And when I say Jesus, I'm talking about his nature, mm -hmm. the nature of Jesus that we've come to stand on, believe in, interact with. We have to let that unseal it for us. Because if we don't, we're going to go our own wrathful way with it, which, which then kind of, circles us back around to the lake of fire, you know, and uh, it, one of the things about the lake of fire, I mean, just to move there on this is, uh, you know, the, the, the famous passage there is Revelation 21, eight that says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, oops, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, I've always been amazed by that passage because it seems so impersonal. It doesn't mention anybody by name. It seems to mention functional identities, you know. And James says if, if you violate, uh, if you violate one of the one of any aspect of the law, you have violated the whole thing. So, how many of us would not be guilty of lying at one portion in our life? How many of us would not be guilty of these other things? You know, being faithless. At the, yeah, okay, I've been faithless, and I'm guilty of all the law of faithlessness, you know, and, and uh, the sexually immorals and idolaters and liars. I mean, who wouldn't have been caught in a lie? I mean, it, it's just a but that, that it's so impersonal. And as I've said, the reason I called my article on this, uh, Jim Carrey in the Lake of Fire, is because in that movie with Jim Carrey, if you remember, he finds this Loki mask, you know, the god of mischief. And that mask grafts itself onto his face. And it actually, the mask now looks like Jim Carrey, but it's grafted into his face. And he, he finds it washed up from a lake. And then at the end of the movie, when, he, when he's in love and he wants to be, it's to stop being this, you know, when he has the mask on, he's empowered to do demonically funny and disgusting stuff. All right. But just total lack of empathy and lack of love you know, in that identity, and he realizes it. So at the end, he's, he's, he's trying to pull the mask off. He pulls it off, and you can see it actually pull his skin, you know, out like three or four inches because it's grafted onto his face. And uh, so then he does manage to pull it off, and where does he throw it? Into the lake. And I felt like the Lord used that whole movie for me as, as a metaphor that what the lake of fire is like. What's, what gets cast into the lake of fire is not us. All right, not our core beings, because you go back to 1 Corinthians 3. You remember what that said? You go through the fire, 
and uh, the, the person who has not built their life on Christ and has false identities that have grafted onto him, that it's that wood, hay, and stubble that's burnt off that person. And, uh, and that's burnt off. And so, too, with a lake of fire, the lake of fire, I believe, is where our, our false identities get cast, these masks that the Lord is able to tear off of us or, or to, uh, you know, kind of do his spiritual surgery on and get us to forsake these identities and take us on our own individual walkabouts and teach us to, to, um, to basically, uh, uh, you know, divorce ourselves from these things, from these identities. And then they go on the lake of fire where they burn for eternity. So these, these are the things that impoverish us. We have such a clumsy view of God that we're either all in or we're all out. You know, we're going to be tortured for eternity or we're going to be all saved for eternity. But when we realize that the Lord is able to piecemeal, you know what I mean by the term piecemeal? He, he, he can deal. He's got laser fingers. All right. He's got laser ability to piecemeal our beings, to carve those things out uh, through teaching, through wooing, through winning us, through correction, through exhortation. You know, through that kind of Scrooge journey to show us where this part of this false identity came from. So he takes us back and he's, he's got he's a laser surgeon. He's very precise. Which, which leads to my explanation for Revelation uh, that, that I think uh, is, is helpful. And that is that um, the ancients practiced something called personification. And personification it is, is, is so important to understanding this piecemeal idea. Um, now, you ask me, what is uh, personification? It's the representation of an object, concept, or trait as if it were a person. Wicked nations become wicked notions, all right? External giants become internal strongholds of fear. Jezebel and Balaam, for instance, become personifications of particular toxic spiritual dynamics working within the churches in Revelation. Isaac and Ishmael, along with Sarah and Hagar, become personifications of the Old and New Covenants in Galatians 4. Wisdom and foolishness, this is the big one, in the book of Proverbs, are, are uh, personalized as what? Women. Women lifting up their competing voices in the street. And what about when, when Paul in Romans 7 starts to talk about sin and evil, the sin man? Well, what is that? He's personifying the sin man, uh, you know, which is the, the aggregate, you know, our aggregate uh, lusts and our aggregate carnality that, that's working within us. And he taught, what does he talk? He talks about the old man and the new man. He personifies different things in us. The new man being that part of us is blended with Christ and yielded to Christ, whereas the old man is, is, is the part that's not. So uh, having said all that, if we see, if we just allow for the fact that what God is going to judge is he's going to judge carnality, soulishness is another term for it, cruelty, the non-virtues, the anti-fruit of the spirit, any, any lovelessness, all those things that impoverish us and the, the, the disease, us. right? Yes. Yes. Uh, he's going to, uh, you know, he's going to push those things out of us and cast them into the lake of fire. So um, it's, um, you know, when we see that, um, you know, we can, we can start to understand that uh, he's, he's in this to save us. He's not in this to throw us in the lake of fire. He's in us. To, to restore us to our pristine spiritual health. 
And, um, and by do, the only thing that gets thrown in the fire is not what we are, but what we're not. All right. And when, 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 we, when we understand that, we can have confidence in his ability that he judges all things well, that he discerns all things well. And if he wants something, if he wants a mask that's grafted itself on our being, and, you know, we can get so confused. We, we can let a particular aspect so graft itself into our soul that we think that's who we are. He knows better. He has a name for us that only he knows. He knows that name. And you know what? He's going to get to that name. And he's going to remove everything with his gentle tenderness and kindness and wisdom. He's going to remove everything that obscures that name, that obstructs that name, that deforms that name. Mm-hmm. And isn't that what a loving, all-powerful father would do? Where do we get this idea that a loving father would say, I'm, I'm taking you and I'm sticking you in the lake of fire and you're never getting out. I mean, dear God, I mean, how brutal and cavemanish is that? It, we, we have such low imaginations for this. So anyhow, um, yeah, that's, let, let me stop there and, and, and let y'all it, it, chime in on that. No, I'm, I'm, I'm in 100% agreement. Uh, you know, the, the people or the personalities of Revelation 21 um, are, are, are me. Are you? Are, you know, they're the, the false identities that I carry. And, and we can even, oh, I'm not a murderer. I'm not this. Well, Jesus in the, the uh, Sermon on the Mount <laughs> kind of changed that equation too from at least a self-righteousness standpoint, right? If I don't think I've committed murder, I mean, I haven't dug deep enough into my own soul to understand what the intent of love is that just harboring anger is akin to murder, right? So, that part of my soul, my identity that harbors anger and vengeance toward another person is the part of the identity that is the murderer, regardless of if it's committed the act or not. And the part that goes through this, this lake of fire and brimstone, which is actually important, I think. Um, not only do these false identities get thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, but so do the devil himself, the, the accuser, and also hell itself or Hades. Get back up. <laughs> Describe for me what the Lake of Fire was created for. Because you guys mentioned it last, last time. Remind us, Bill. So I was getting there. So, okay. and again, as I understand it, the Lake of Fire, once we start to understand that the devil goes through it, hell, Hades, the grave is a better word, goes through it. Our false identities are thrown into it. All of these things are what's thrown into it. And then we have to understand it's a lake of fire. Fire is uh, the Greek word pyros. And then brimstone, which is the Greek word theu, right? Which is a derivative of divinity. Same root word as God, theos, right? The same root word. So we're, it's the lake of Fire, and to an ancient person, fire would have been very synonymous with purification. Absolutely. Purification is, that's how you made sure your water was was pure. That's how you made sure your tools, your instrumentation were free from disease. That's what you did with a, a disease-riddled body or a leper, is you put it in the fire. And the fire consumed the disease and protected the community right? Fire was not always an evil thing, and fire, fire was a necess- necessary thing. They would take the ashes from the red heifer in the Jewish temple, a fire, they would consume the entirety of this cow, and they would purify all of the temple, 
uh, items for sacrifice in the ashes and the fire of the red heifer. Fire is synonymous with purification, always in scripture for the most part. And in this, it's not just fire, it's also what we call sulfur or what we call brimstone. But what that really is, is the same root as divinity. Mm-hmm. Uh, we understand if we just said, instead of saying fire and brimstone, which sounds really, in, you know, bad, and we said fire and divinity, these are being thrown into the very heart of the Father. Wow, that changes the equation of how these are uh, entirely, does it not? But this sounds like new teaching. <laughs> <laughs> it's Bible Hub, right here. <laughs> well, well, can I can I offer a suggestion as to how to triangulate this passage that Bill just described? Please do with First Corinthians three. This is very important, I think, because you know what we I think what we sometimes forget is that different Bible New Te- different writers of the New Testament may explain the same event using different terminology because they're they're processing it through a different filter did you say that you could put up first corinthians 3 10 through 15 you mean like that wow (laughs) (laughs) that's good let's let's uh let's read this i want to show you something in this according to the grace of god which is given unto me as a wise master builder um, i i have laid the foundation and another builds on it but let every man take heed how he builds on it For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, and precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble, every man's work, work, what what did I just say? Every man's what? Work. 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 Remember that word. Every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by what? What did Bill just talk about? Fire. And the fire shall what? Try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work, if any man's work abides, which he has built on, he shall receive a reward, which he's built on Christ. In other words, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so is by fire. What? So. <laughs> saved? Wait a second. Any man? Wait, you said any man, Richard. Wait a second. Any man? Yes, yes, yes. So what what are the key words here that people need to highlight that they're overreading? Because sometimes in the Christian tradition or church tradition, we gloss over from the lens of eternal torment and see, yeah, yeah, it says that, and it probably does. But when you switch the lens and actually look at words, what are the words you want them to see? Well, one word is the judgment of every man's works. Guess what Revelation 20 and 21 calls itself? The judgment of every man's works. So what Paul is talking about here, I think we can triangulate with Revelation and locate it and say this is the exact same event. Revelation 20.12 says the dead were judged according to their works. So Paul and John are describing the same event, the judgment of every man's works, but from slightly different perspectives. Now, know what Paul says ultimately happens to everyone who is so judged. And you just, and we read it, if any man's work, operative word being any man's work, shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet as by fire. So the only difference between those who, who, uh, who suffer loss and those who don't, those who have built their life on Christ are going to have less to burn. But I'm not even, I'm not sure anyone doesn't have anything that needs burning. I mean, yeah. honestly. I mean, you know, you know, there there may be just a few things that need to be incinerated in the best of people, 
And in the worst of people, maybe some more. And some people we might think are the best of people. There may be a ton that needs to be burned. I think the theme song, when you cross over from this life to the next, the theme song is going to be, I can see clearly how <laughs> the rain is gone. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And one of the other aspects of Revelation, and again, this is probably going back a little bit, taking two steps back. We have to understand, at least the way I've, I've studied it pretty deeply, is Revelation is using the voices of the Jewish prophetical past. Isaiah, Zechariah, Daniel, uh, Hosea, a lot of these guys' vernacular and even phraseology is being reiterated now through the enlightened view or the apocalypsed view of John, who has seen the fulfillment of Christ in his full life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and even the post-community church, right? He's seen it, he's seen it all, and he's telling the story through the same voices, a lot of times through the same phraseology exactly. as, as, the, as the Jewish prophets. If you go to Isaiah 43, uh, uh, I think verse 2, it says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Again, this theme of fire is not new to Corinthians or to, um, pardon me, um, to Revelation. This theme is very, it's carried through the entire progressive journey that is the story of Christ, even before his physical manifestation. Yes. Amen. Amen. So, so, so if, if we go back and we look at uh, what do we know about the lake of fire? This is from Revelation 19 and 20. These, this is all that we know about it. The devil is cast along into it with the beast and the false prophet. The, that's one thing. The next, that's Revelation 19, 20. And then those that worship the image of the beast are cast into it. Anything in us, in other words, that would worship the image of the beast a beastly, uh, a beastly image of God, a beastly image of existence, a beastly image. You know what, I, what we're talking about here. Fundamentalism is a beast, okay? Uh, th the next thing we know about is that the devil, now listen to this. Wouldn't it be, if the devil is cast into it, then let's assume for a moment that Lucifer is the devil. I know some people disagree with that, but I think it's there as a type. It's hard to say that's not a type because there's too many other things to talk about. But let's just assume for a minute Lucifer becomes Satan. What, what gets cast in the lake of fire? Satan. What gets saved from the lake of fire? Lucifer. Lucifer gets restored. All right. Let's look at Saul and Paul. Which, which one of those identities between Saul and Paul gets cast into the lake of fire? Saul. Why? Because Saul murdered Christians. He hated. He fulfilled the law. He was chief, you know, the chief Pharisee. And yet, what was he? He was a beast. All right, so he goes, that identity of Paul goes into the fire, but what gets saved from the fire? Paul, you know, so, so again and again, uh, you know, we, we can, uh, who, and it said, whosoever is not found written in the book of life. Is I was just going to ask you this. This is the big one. And actually, that, that, that word whosoever can also mean whatsoever. You know, whosoever, whatsoever is not found in the book of life is cast into it. Whatever part of us is not found in the book of life is cast into it. Whatever part of us that uh, comes from a false identity or an identity not built on Christ. What goes in there, anything honest that's not built on Christ, okay. that's what goes into the lake of fire. Okay, compare 
the um, traditional perspective on that because the traditional one says, well, those that don't say the prayer are all going to hell in the lake of fire. Help us understand the comparison of the two. You just about well, said it. I think you said it, but say it one well, more time because the comparison's critical. Yeah. Go, go ahead, Bill, if you had that. I can chime in here a little bit too because I think there's two verses. And again, they tie back to Revelation, which is wonderful because it's all in the same place. So we know that at least the, the thread is common here. Um, go back to the beginning of the, the story uh, or the book uh, of Revelation. It's sent to seven churches right? Each of these churches given a little bit of a, a message. It's interesting. And in verse 17, chapter two, verse 17, it says, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the spirit says to the churches, right? It's almost like John stepping back going, wait a second. I, I need to re-clarify something. I'm widening it back up again. So all these churches, all seven, anyone who is victorious, I will give them some hidden manna, right? Some hidden good stuff. I will also give that person a white stone, with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Now, if we Is that fast like through, the red pill, blue pill, if we fast even to the revelation of Christ, when he's coming down on his, on his steed, he has a, a sash with only a name that he knows, right? Hmm. We are all have a name. We all have a name, just like a G Richard saying that we don't even know yet. That's written in the book of life. And name is nature. You know, so name the Hebrew, is nature. Name right. represents it's, the nature. It's, it's something bigger than Bill. It's something bigger than Mike or Richard or any. It's an identity that is so beautifully unique in the expression of God that is you, that is me, that it, when whispered by the Father in our ear, it's going to spark something and it's going to cast off through fire yes. all of those false identities and awaken who we've meant to be. And I'm not like you and I'm not like Richard and I'm not, I'm a unique, beautiful expression that is also entangled with this. It's the paradox of union and independence blended into interdependence, right? It's, it's something we can't understand. It's this triune experience that is, so it's almost like this residential identity, right? Yeah. And we've been learning about our identity in Christ. Residential identity was a term uh, phrased by Ralph Harris. He, he said that. I loved it because it gave uh, some character to the self-effort, the ego. And uh, people think that that is who they really are. And so now everybody's craving for, I need to know my identity. But the true identity is our spiritual eternal name, not well, the residential one. And I'll... Exactly. I'll go, at least, I'm, I may go slightly off kilter. I think that the ego side of us is a contributor to both the negative, but also the positive. It's building blocks onto us that are beautiful and making us unique expressions of experience and insight and wonder. Not all of the ego bolt-ons are bad. And I think that's the one thing I would say that I, I see another side of this grace equation community deconstruction that basically says everything that we're experiencing is bad. I've got to totally disconnect from reality and become this ethereal spirit, la la, you know, remove ourselves from all suffering, from all, all, all connectedness and going to a baseball game. No, some of those things are real and they're good. And that's where it's the judgment of the works. Back but, to that, but that thinking was also part of one of the sects of yeah. Jewish leadership, right? I right. forget which one it was. They, they're the ones who believed that anything physical was evil, unless I'm, I'm not seeing it right. But I thought there was, there was a category Gnostic. that said, hey, the, whatever yeah. is physical is now 
evil. It's bad. So yeah, that's gotta, Gnostic. Some of the Gnostic. Yes. Yeah. Gnostic is well, yeah, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, so, so let's look at it from this way. If we can agree, do y'all agree that 1 Corinthians 3 says that those whose lives are not built on Christ, who have not built anything on him, go through the fire and that they themselves are saved? It, it, you know, that's pretty clear that it says that. So if we can show that Revelation is the same event as that, then what can we deduce? That everybody will be saved. All right, which means that what I'm saying about sin, the second death, and personification, that what gets thrown, the only thing that gets judged are the, are the wrong appendages, are the, are the carnal appendages that we've allowed to graft into our being. The, the Lord will prune us. That judgment becomes more of a pruning, a colossus, you know, is that word for pruning that that's, talks about punishment in the Gospels that we talked about. It's, it's the word that, you know, prunes us back so that what? So that we can have full growth. But even in the pruning back, we, we, and the, for the Lord to prune us back means him, his showing us the wisdom of the error of our ways and bringing us to a place of repentance. So let me prove to you that 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15 and Revelation 20, 12 through 15 are referring to the same event. Both are referring to a post-mortem experience. Both refer to themselves as the judgment of men's works. Both explicitly refer to every man, human, being so judged. Both use the imagery of fire, and both refer to some sort of dividing, which includes suffering and loss. So I think that uh, we need to understand that when, 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 we, when we see different authors in the New Testament describe something differently, we need to use a little bit of discernment and not be so legalistic that it's got to happen just the way John said it. No, it's obvious. We'll look for the clues. If the clues are there that it's talking about the same thing, then what do we need to do? We don't need to pull those events apart. We need to blend them together. And if we blend them together and you blend other statements from Paul throughout the New Testament and statements from Jesus that he will draw all men to himself, then we're left with an amazing conclusion on this whole thing that all of us will be reconciled to God and Christ will fill all in all, as Ephesians says. Christ descended to hell in Ephesians, which is, would be a topic for another day, but he descended into hell. He led captivity captive, and he didn't lead captivity captive on 33 AD. He led captivity, eternal captivity, whoever would be afflicted in hell, whoever would be have, you know, grafting issues. The whole thing about hell, and I, I remember, I remember reading about, uh, I, I live where a lot of the Civil War battles lived, and Bill does too, a lot of Civil War battles around here, and you know what they used to do with uh, prisons, they would turn Civil War prisons into hospitals, so that as, 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 uh, you know, as the, as the war was won, what formerly became a prison now became a hospital, and I would argue that hell is, 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 is sort of an emergency room hospital. We, we're, we're, we each have hells of our own creation in this lifetime. But to the extent the Lord is involved with hell, it's an ER station. It's an emergency room, a triage area where he sets our soul down, you know, and he comes up to us as the paramedic, you know, as the cosmic paramedic. And he restores sanity to us. And, you know, either through the application of medicine, wisdom, balm, whatever you want to call it, therapy. Uh, but but he, he basically leads us back to a place of health. If we could just exercise our imaginations to see that God is a healer and he wants to heal all of us. He, and like he said, when they wanted to call down fire on the Samaritans, we talk about that every week. Jesus said, you don't know which spirit you're of. I'm not in this to destroy anybody. 
I'm in this to save everybody. And if we capture that, and he's an all-powerful God, then we have to put more of our faith in God's ability to save us to the uttermost than we do in our ability to resist him to the guttermost. All right. So, it, it, and that, to me, that's an easy decision. It's easy for me to believe more in, in, in Jesus's abilities than in my own to resist him, you know? And uh, I think if we can just, if we can just prophesy and maybe that's too fancy a word, but just exhort people with this image of God, a little bit of that leaven will start to leaven. I, I've seen Bill and I, you know, have both experienced this. When we, you start getting a view of God's goodness, it leavens into all your theology. Right. It's going to knock penal substitution atonement out of the way, like like uh, the ark knocked Dagon over. You know that that It'll false do it idol for you, that. right? It'll and, do it yeah. for you. It doesn't. You can't yeah. pr practice it and make it happen. And hell, or at least the traditional view of hell. No, it's not even traditional because the early church didn't believe this. We're right. talking about the fifth and sixth century view of hell, and then that kind of got a grip. That's another Dagon statue that's getting knocked over. And it's getting knocked over today because enough people aren't buying this baloney anymore that a God of love would torture people forever if they say no to him. I mean, what kind of love is that? I mean, I get arrested. We get arrested for doing that today. You know, so <laughs> there's a there's a book out there that that takes heed of this verse in uh, Revelation 21, 25. It says, on no date will its gate ever be shut, for there will be no night there. And that's the combination of the new heaven and earth, the new Jerusalem, you know. And, and obviously there's a couple, there's a chapter that goes beyond there, and it talks about that outside the gate are all these people. But I think we have to come back and reference this, because on there's and what it's saying is, while there may be some that are still working their way through the process, her gates will never Amen. be shut. Amen. Yep. Probably one of the best books is has that title. It's called Her yeah. Gates Will Never Be Shut by That's Brad right. Jerzak. It was the, the first theological textbook I read that was, one, easy to read, and honestly covered all the bases in my mind. It was phenomenal. So here's a question for you guys. What if the English translators translated the Bible word for hell uh, properly? Would it have changed things in our culture today? It's a loaded well, question. <laughs> well, I would say no, because now I'm, I'm probably in a minority here, because you, what you can't deny is that there are passages throughout the Old and New Testaments that seem to imply that there's a fiery judgment uh of of bad things to happen all right it's there if you read it in the literal revelation talks about the pit you know where abaddon abaddon's pit where scorpions come out of it in revelation and kill and destroy and and, and there's some couple of pit verses in the old testament i i think it's not being i don't think it's being fair with the facts to say that the scriptures don't talk about fiery post-mortem judgment and whether we call that hell or whether we call it anything, you know, whether you substitute Gehenna or Tartarus or any of those things in for it, I think we still have to acknowledge that we need to explain what the postmortem fire is. Because hell to me is just a, is just a bit. And, and actually, if you go back to the, to the Revelation thing, hell is emptied into the lake of fire. But how, I mean, so, so, so hell's okay. not really an issue anymore anyhow. But well, the, the back, lake of fire really is the ultimate issue. Back to the translation, though. Have they used the word Gehenna or Hades or whatever? Um, I think the King James did do a lot of damage. Yeah, I still think it, unquestionably. 
I'm looking for an honest answer that says, yes, had it been translated differently, then the words used would have been the ones focused on not now this blanket phrase called hell, which now has been a definition has been forced onto it, which is what we're rebutting now. And I, now, I think, we're, now we're digging deeper into I what it that. really means. As, as, as the old adage goes, if ifs and buts were candies and nuts, we'd all have a Merry Christmas. <laughs> yeah. I just heard that the other day for the first time in my life, and now I hear you say it again. <laughs> all right. Take, take a look at this. This says, tell me you love me and make it sincere. Oh, yeah. Okay. Th this is why I'm asking the question. I th I does it make a difference? I think the idea of yes, but the, I think you have to go back further than why was it translated the way it was. Okay. And, and the answer to that would be because the church, quote unquote, um, ha had become institutionalized. And the reason it was translated was the way it was, was because it was being used as a mechanism of political, uh, imperial, and, and, you know, control and fear. And so now right. to redeem it the way we've been talking about the last, I think, six sessions, today's topic seems to sum it up that yeah. there is room to at least revisit the topic of fire. It's not the eternal torment uh, that we've been told about. It's more beautiful than that. Like Lush. it's more redemptive. It's, it's actually what? No one told me this. That's why this is shocking. We're so, taking the systems of indoctrination that have existed for years and honestly have carried the message of Christ through in a, in a fairly consistent way. And with the, the proliferation of information and access to research that, that the average person has, unlike any other generation before, yeah. we're able to really ask these questions and dig deep into these answers that, truth be told, pastors never had. I mean, unless you were sitting in Rome in a library with nothing but time and being funded by somebody, you could have figured these things out. Now we can jump online in 20 minutes, get to the roots of words, to, to dig and see the parallels of scripture, see commentary, have this conversation in the open that honestly has not been able to happen for 1700 years. Safely. Yeah. Yeah. So would it be safe to say that um, if we were to look at the topic of fire, and lake of fire is very different than the topic of hell. Is that a rational way to not dismiss hell, but in everything we've talked about, nothing has, to, it, when we use the word hell, it is understanded, uh, sorry, across the board. Everyone sees it as the lake of fire where it's eternal torment. Everyone believes okay. that, or if you refer to that, every religious person sees that. Okay. So, yeah. To redeem it and say, look, let's revisit these passages, which we've just done. And what does fire mean? What, you know, it's not talking about hell, hell. This is talking about. It's not uh, Dante's Inferno. Yes. Right. Yeah. That's well, what I'm getting I, at. Yeah. I do it's think, I do think, I do think you could say that the different words used all point to some sort of post-mortem judgment, whether we're talking about angels and Tartarus. And we shouldn't be scared of it. Yeah. Yeah. We, that's the, but, but, oh Finger. Mike, that is the point. That is the master point. I've been looking, man, that just hit me like a lot. Well, you're exactly right. We shouldn't be scared of it. It's the fundamental aspect of what judgment is. I don't care if angels are being judged. We're being judged. My false identities are being judged. Whatever the hell it is being judged. You know, we shouldn't be scared of it. And I, I looked these verses up just when Bill had shared the stuff about the fire. I got these from my friends, uh, my friend Sando, uh, Santo Calarco. But he had posted some. Uh, but listen, I mean, numbers, uh, Malachi 3, 2 through C. This is Old Testament stuff. 
It says, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier. The perp uh, and then Numbers 31, 23, anything that can withstand the fire must be put through the fire and then it will be clean. Uh, Zechariah 13, one through, de uh, one, through uh, one and two. On that day, there should be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. I, uh, and on that day, I will cut off names off the idols. You know, uh, and the, all this is speaking of cutting off those, those natures, those idolatrous natures. Zechariah 13, nine, and I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. I mean, I, and I could give you verse after verse uh, where, where there's Old Testament stuff and stuff from the church fathers that all talk about fire. And it, it, we need an imagery to do, Mike, which I think was what you were trying to get us to. You know, this, this whole thing, we, we, we have allowed a false lexicon to come up, a distorted lexicon, uh, that almost a frantic lexicon and a nightmarish lexicon of things that are, uh, yeah, fear-based. And, and uh, yeah. And, I, and all of them really stem back to, to, to Christ. Well, do we believe God's like Jesus? Or do we believe that Jesus is like a demented version of God? You can take Revelation and try and twist it to make the case that Jesus is like a demented version of God. But I think the point of Revelation is taking the, the Jewish version of God, and again, that whole oxymoron way, the, the whole point of the story is to give it that language with the upside-down outcome that God is actually like Jesus, exactly mm. like Jesus. Amen. Shoot. And we Amen. don't have to be scared of that, ever. Amen. Love it. Well, can I throw a real twist in the end here? <laughs> yes. Curveball. Okay. The curveball is this. I, I'm already hearing somebody say, but Jesus said, watch out for the day is coming when uh, the one person's walking, one will be taken away. Um, the, the armies will come. Um, fire is going to destroy the city. Like there, Remember that? Ma I forget where Matthew is it's now. In Matthew, like 23, I think. -ish. But people have used that chapter as the point towards the end of the earth world and pointing to hell. But I have, uh, once I've seen this, I can't unsee it. But I found that text to refer to a 70 AD event that was in their lifetime. Because even Jesus said. Uh, <laughs> it's going to happen in this generation. <laughs> in, well, that was the key. The word in this generation will see this. And when heaven and earth passes away, because that's another big trigger. Everybody think, well, that's the end of the world. So everybody's happy to see the end of the world come. Our politicians in the U.S. are pushing for the end of the world in a sense. You know, pro-Israel, pro all this stuff. All this with a faulty uh, understanding of end times. This is all mixed into this revelation thing. And, and, and the mixed into the hell thing. I didn't know it was so twisted until I began to re revisit my end times theology. And I had no idea that. I was hanging on to that part in Matthew where Jesus was saying all this stuff because I thought it was pointing to hell. Have, I want to wrap up with that. Is that okay? It might be too much, but no, no, no I think it's good. You know, the, uh, my, my Brad Jerzak, who we're all friends with, you know, uh, some people think the gospels were even written after 70 AD. You know, there's no way to know for sure. And I asked Brad one time, I said, well, does it make a difference if the God, if this gospel where it describes a 70 AD event, say it was written, you know, in 75 or 80 or even 90, you know, AD, 
what happened to be talking to 70 AD and Brad said something I thought was brilliant. He said, well, because I could see that the new Testament, something to the effect that I could see that whoever was writing it, uh, that they would take stuff that had already happened. You know, even if it had already happened, they would interpret it under that, under that, you know, because they're projecting back what Jesus said. Yep. And, you know, we don't understand the process that these gospel writers were going through when they were remembering what Jesus said. So that just, that kind of set me free on it. It doesn't matter when the gospel mm. was because that, I well, think we don't that have does to be fit, right. That does fit. Yeah. That does fit. That does fit the 70 AD, you know, paradigm on it. So what template? So, Hey, but you're right. It's clearly an earthly event. It's a, there, there, there's not any postmortem, you know, stuff in any of that. And you know, people have taken those same verses to talk about the rapture and stuff True. like that. Of course, you know, when they've amalgamated this piecemeal, this whole hell narrative together, it's really a hellology, not a theology, right? Ah, yes. I like that. Right? It really is. And they've taken this piece and that piece and this, and they go over here to Isaiah, and they just they, they, they amalgamate Scripture and create a, a story that really is a bunch was of stuff. A, was that a mic drop? Hellology? hellology. Yeah, yeah. So, well, and, and it's like the difference between a nightmare and a great dream. Yeah. A dream where you're laughing and joking and just relishing it versus a dream where the same imagery can be used. But because one's a dream and the other's a nightmare, there's a spirit, uh, you know, the fear thing you said earlier, Mike, I thought was brilliant. You know, it's a fear based thing and anything fear based. It doesn't matter what I, I could be talking about. Jesus is a lamb. And if you were fear based, you would see a lamb with fangs coming out to devour it. You know, sinners. We either I believe mean, at the end of the day, we either believe that Jesus crucified is is really the pinnacle image of what he came to be and do, or we don't. Simple that. If we Amen. And I think that's what Christianity struggles with culturally right now, institutionally, is the cross is is not the end or the beginning for the preponderance of people who claim to, to believe in Jesus. They believe there's a second Jesus coming, a second personality coming that's far different than the image of Christ on the cross, reconciling the cosmos to himself, never counting trespasses against anyone, saying it is finished. Amen. If we believe that's the starting point for creation and the finale of creation, and everything has to come through that point, for, for definition, for, for everything, th then it changes how we view all of these independent scriptures that we've amalgamated otherwise. So do we believe that Jesus crucified is the center, is the access of all of our faith in God or not? It's that simple. And the more I've come to believe in the person of Christ to be the epicenter of how all humanity can know the Father— no one can know the Father but through me. I believe that. Yep. That's where it all comes back to for me. And, and now I know that image. I'm no longer in fear of hell or anything else. And I will draw all men to myself if I'm right. lifted up, which he has been lifted up. And I think, I, I think the scripture time. says some. <laughs> it says all. <laughs> I, 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 I've said it this way. I've said it this way before, that every scripture must bow its interpretive knee to Jesus. That's right. Every scripture. And when we do, then, then there's no more nightmares. Wouldn't that be beautiful if we just sat there and saw that Jesus, I've come to get rid of all your nightmares. Yep. Okay. I know the nightmares you all struggle with. I know the nightmares that taunt you and haunt you and torture you. I've come here to tell you, I've, I've come to dispel all the nightmares, especially in our theology. Yep. And that's wonderful. That's the good news. That's really good. Amen. I like that. That was really good. All right.
I think we covered an awful lot. It is, is it is a topic that can, we can keep going on. So thank you, uh, Richard and Bill, for the time and having these conversations. And I look forward to the other ones that are coming up. Thank you again. All right. Thank you, Mike. All right. All right. That was part six finale of uh, What is Hell? I hope you enjoyed that. I sure did. Uh, I'm probably going to have to re-listen to this one again. It, it was just that good. Um, but, uh, here, here's the cool part. Um, no matter what your perspective on the topic of hell is, um, those individuals that are dogmatic and, um, just to dig the heels in that their answer is the only right answer. I'm begging you to expand your understanding and realize there are other perspectives. Uh, I've grown up with the eternal torment, infernalist mindset. I, I believe that studied it. It was non-negotiable for most of my life. Um, but as things start to unpack and, and be revealed, uh, I, I'm realizing, oh my goodness, there are other ways to see this. And the early church fathers saw it differently. Two things I want to refer you to. Don't forget the articles down the bottom uh, in the description of today's uh, thingy. Also, uh, I'm going to be posting, I hope the PDF can go online. I hope it works. But there's a, an, uh, Richard Murray posted a, a post on his Facebook page called The Early Church and Hell. Uh, really good. And it talks about the first 500 years um, of uh, the schools of theology, there were six of them, and four of them taught that all men would eventually be rescued from hell, um, which uh, I think, uh, Karen, you were mentioning something about uh, purgatory. And uh, listen, the more I grow deeper in this, I'm realizing, hey, even our Catholic friends who uh, I was brought up to believe are all wrong, and they were brought up to believe we're all wrong. <laughs> if you're not Catholic, you're, you're not of the true church and vice versa. Oh, my goodness. It's just crazy judgmentalism that comes out of that. Um, but they, they have uh, doctrines that are, are uh, taken from uh, interpretations that... Well, if you look back, you realize, hey, there's 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 some grounds for why they thought that. Whether they arrive at the at a correct conclusion or not is irrelevant. Um, but at least it gives hope that there are perspectives out there we need to explore, and I love that. Um, so I'm going to read the end of this article because it's just so good. Um, when the church rejected this high view of God's goodness and replaced it with a view of God as the eternal torturer, the dark ages began, almost to the day. Ever since, there has remained a constant and stubborn strand of those embedded in the church who believe hell is not an eternal torture chamber, but rather God's final crisis center, a cosmic ER station where God performs complicated, intense, and painful surgery on human souls in order to remove all the false sin identities accumulated over their lifetimes. Oh my goodness, that's amazing. Um, so yeah, I, I'm going to share the post to my Facebook page. I'm going to see if the article uh, can be transferred to heaven in Word document and a PDF. So please, if you want it, let me know. We'll get it to you. Also, I want to recommend uh, this book by Brad Jerzak. If you've not read it, it is a must-read. It's called Her Gates Will Never Be Shut, Hope, Hell, and the New Jerusalem. Uh, you'll love this. It is For being a theological text, it is easy to read. It's simple, understandable. Um, I loved it. And again, this is about expanding your understanding. If you come at this from, 
only knowing hell as a place of eternal torment that you'll roast like a rotisserie chicken for eternity, uh, you need to get a better perspective. That is not the only perspective. In fact, it's a very weak perspective taught uh, over the first five centuries of the early church. So I, I also appreciate how Richard was saying, you know, there is, um, uh, there are scriptures that point to this this pit, this place, and I thought, okay, there's there's true honesty. While I don't want to talk about that personally, because it's like I'm a, I don't want to feed a false narrative, but this is where education comes in, where you see that there are perspectives. You can't deny how people arrived at certain things, but you can't stay there. You also need to explore and see how others have arrived at different perspectives and why. That's education. And then if you could come to a different conclusion, that's fine. But to say they're all wrong or a heretic, people will write that. Um, people stop writing that on my page, which is great because they probably just don't care anymore. But the point is um, that kind of a rebuttal isn't the most immature thing you can do. Um, and again, careful on your Facebook posts, folks. Don't start arguments on Facebook. If you have an honest question that could be contentious, private message people. You don't have to put it out there and to show, oh, see, I'm asking a wise question. Oh, my God. I'm embarrassed at how many times I tried to do that. And really, it's jockeying for ego position. It really is. So let's let's refrain from that. Um, let's uh, uh, become the love of Christ, for that is our true identity. Um, I really hope you enjoyed this. I'm going to go through the comments real quick. We have Sandra from uh, the UK. I'm so glad you joined in. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. This has been a lot of fun. Oh, Karen, I love you, Karen, from Texas. She says, going to hell is not necessary here. Being there and was not there alone, he stayed with me. And this is the idea of Christ walking through hell with us. I agree. You've been through hell and back. And uh, I just love your heart and your testimony. You don't do fake. <laughs> That's for sure. I love it. Um, I can see clearly now. Yeah, I love that song. <laughs> um, is the burning, Karen asks, is the burning, if... Uh, is this burning if works uh, of works where Catholics might get purgatory? Well, I I heard through this the last six weeks or six uh, discussions elements that could point to how the Catholic uh, doctrine of purgatory has come to being. Now it's been challenged ever since, but the concept of purging and clean I think it was hijacked and mis misdirected. I would not agree with purgatory, but I can see where they came from and where they're getting it, where they've received it from. I see that and I think, okay, they're not all wrong, which gives us a little more grace for other faiths that we disagree with. It's like, wait a minute. Um, if we can see how they arrived at that conclusion, it makes us more loving towards others and opens conversation, right? Um, Oh my goodness, yeah. Uh, let's keep going. Uh, Piet writes, I, I don't know if I spelled your, or said your name right. Uh, so is hell for real. I wrote you back. It uh, looks like we have a lot of mutual friends, and uh, I hope that was answered in the discussion as we went through. Mark and Joy, yay, from Guelph. Great seeing you guys. Uh, yeah, we have the freedom to reject love. Uh, Howard from Sorrento, BC. Um, Let's keep going here. Every scripture must bow its interpreted knees to Jesus. Yeah, that was a great line at the end there. Love that. Um, let's see. 
All right. I think that Abram, uh, good morning. Don't know where you're from, but happy to say hi. Tell us where you're from. Uh, I'll be signing off in just a moment. Um, yep. Yeah. The, the topic of hell is huge. People do not realize they have an embedded belief about it, even though you ask them, no, oh, no, I don't really care much about it. Yes, you, it's there. It, whether it's subliminal um, or whatever religious background you come from. So I think we need to look at hope and we need to look at Christ, who is the exact representation of the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Jesus said. So we got to go back uh, and see everything through the lens of Christ. That's it. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. And I'm looking forward to actually teaching a series on this. This series was a discussion, not a teaching series, even though you can get a lot out of it. So I'm looking forward to much more. Uh, next week, we're going to, I'm going to re-air a, a program uh, with Sherry Palace, uh, her fireside conversation. I was a guest uh, uh, last night on her program. We talked about forgiveness and it was really a good conversation. I had no idea where it was going to go, and it was a good one-hour thing. So I'm going to re-air that here. I was given permission to share that on Still Growing Grace. So look forward to that next week, and then uh, we'll see what happens over the next little while. If you have a topic you want discussed or uh, whatever, send me a message. And uh, if I haven't already talked about it, we'll find a guest and talk about some more. Um, there's so much to grow in and expand under. So, hey, we'll go. That's it. You guys have a really, really great day, and I will catch you guys next week, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on Still Growing Grace. Join me next time on Still Growing in Grace for more good news. Enjoy previous episodes by downloading our podcast at growingingrace.ca. You can also visit hopefellowshipycc.com to find our service times and location. If this show has been an encouragement to you, please consider making a donation today at growingingrace.ca and help us keep spreading this good news. Thank you again for tuning in to Still Growing in Grace.